thank you very much for that um, kind introduction. I'm glad you didn't try to do it in Latin because I think as most people would say in reaction, tempera mutantor et nos mutamor in illis. Um, I'm very intimidated by this audience. It's very good of you to come today when the, the sun is shining. And I have to start with um, two confessions and one declaration. The first confession, confession is acute embarrassment at being here near to Napoleon's tomb. The first time I came to Napoleon's tomb nearby, if I talk very loud, loudly, I think the great man might, might hear me, that we were brought our children and we were standing reverentially over the shrine to the great man. I'm so sorry. He did hear. He did hear. I think that, I think that was a cry from the grave. Um, and we suddenly noticed that our five-year-old son, who was standing looking down at the tomb, had a T-shirt on, and in great letters across it, it said, St. Helena. <laughs> and we thought, my God, they'll think we're trying to provoke them. So we covered it up very quickly. It was a T-shirt given by his grandparents who'd visited St. Helena earlier. My second confession is, um, and I must declare it publicly, I'm in a state of great marital distress. Two days ago, was the 5th of May, was the anniversary of Napoleon's death. And I was so obsessed with that that I forgot that it was our wedding anniversary. <laughs> and so my wife was not very pleased, having had a sufficiency of Napoleon over the last two years. My declaration is that although my talk is about Napoleon, what I'm going to talk about is Napoleon's last days, not, not uh, his whole career. He was buried here next door, and you'll visit the tomb, on the 15th of December, 1840. Uh, but uh, that was not his first burial. The first funeral and burial took place on the island of St. Helena on the 9th of May, 1821. So what I'm going to do is to talk about what happened to Napoleon after, that, uh, 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 after he went to St. Helena and how he ended up here at Les Invalides, the so-called Le Retour des Cendres, as uh, it is in French. The story begins at the Battle of Waterloo, uh, the defeat by Wellington and Blucher at Waterloo. Blucher would have uh, executed Napoleon if he could have got his hands on him, but the great Duke uh, prevented that. After the defeat on the 18th of June, 1815, Napoleon fled to Paris. He tried to persuade the provisional government which was led by Fouché, the dreaded uh, police minister, the great uh, survivor. He was told, he tried to persuade the assembly to allow him to raise another army and fight on. But in effect, they said, no, we've had enough, go. And they said that uh, they'd provide two frigates to take him to the United States, two frigates at Rochefort on the, uh, the, the west coast, provided the British gave a safe conduct to allow him to, to go. So Napoleon, first of all, went out to the Chateau of Malmaison. Some of you may have visited it just outside Paris, a beautiful house which Napoleon acquired for Josephine. And he spent a few days at Malmaison. The hostess was Hortense de Beauharnais, his uh, daughter-in-law, the daughter of uh, Josephine. 
and after a few days of indecision, Napoleon decided to go to Rochefort. And he set off in disguise. He was in Abbey Bourgeois. He uh, gave up his uniform, uh, put civilian clothes on, and went down to Rochefort on the uh, west coast, and where there were two French frigates waiting in the harbour. He spent several days at Rochefort, uh, and then went on to the little island, I don't know whether any of you know that, the Ile d'Aix, uh, where, which is a heavily fortified island, which Napoleon had fortified himself. And he spent some time deciding what to do and conferring with his quite large entourage. And there were really three options. He still hadn't got safe conduct from the British. The first option was to go back into France and raise an army and fight on but he realized that uh, that really wasn't uh, feasible. The second one was to try and break the English blockade, and that really wasn't on. He'd have been blown out of the water with the, the rest of his entourage. And the third option, which was discussed with his colleagues, was actually to surrender to the British. And in the end, Napoleon decided to surrender to the British, who by this time had blockaded the the Ro uh, Rochefort harbour and port. And he handed himself over uh, to the uh, warship, the ship of the line, the Bellerophon, known by the sailors who had not had the advantage of reading greats as the Billy Ruffian. And perhaps I could have the first, um, the first picture, please. And there's a picture of Napoleon climbing aboard the Bellerophon. And the... Uh, the records say that the sailors who rowed him over wept as they saw Napoleon surrendering to the perfidious English. And as he went, went aboard, the, um, uh, the, uh, the diary of uh, one of his valets, uh, Marchand, says he addressed the captain, <coughs> Captain Frederick Maitland, Je viens à votre bord me mettre sous la protection des lois d'Angleterre. Uh, I come aboard and put myself under the protection of the laws of England. It's a little ironical that Napoleon, who manipulated the law to suit himself, was prepared to put his trust in the, the laws of uh, England. Events then moved very quickly. The Bellerophon uh, uh, went across the Channel and arrived off Tor Bay on the 24th of July, 1815. And on the journey, again, in an extraordinary way, uh, Napoleon sent a letter in advance to the Prince Regent, who was then standing in for the allegedly mad George III. And uh, perhaps I can read the letter. He said, A victim to the factions which distract my country and the enmity of the greatest powers of Europe, I have terminated my political career and I come like Themistocles, obviously Napoleon had read greats also, to throw myself upon the hospitality of the British people. I put myself under the protection of their laws, which I claim from your Royal Highness as the most powerful, constant, and most generous of my enemies. Again, I don't know whether this is a breathtaking cheek or absolute naivety. It's beyond belief that the British government would have allowed Napoleon to settle somewhere like a country gentleman in England. He would have become a centre for political pressures and intrigue. 
Events then took their course. Napoleon was not allowed to land. The Bellerophon stood off Torbay, Start Point and Plymouth for 10 days or so while the British government conferred and decided what to do with him. The British government were charged under the Paris Convention of the 2nd of August 1815, which declared Napoleon an outlaw. Uh, they were charged, and I quote, uh, to, um, to dispose of Napoleon in such a way that, sorry, I quote, he would never again have the opportunity to disturb the peace of Europe. The government, on the advice not of Wellington, and Napoleon thought that it was Wellington who landed him on St. Helena, the government decided, on the advice of, in effect, the permanent secretary of the Admiralty of the day, to send him to the island of St. Helena, which, as you may know, was it was then owned by the East India Company. It was a very important staging point between India and the United Kingdom. It's a very remote island, and probably now still the most remote uh, inhabited island in the world. It's about 1,800 kilometers from Angola on that side, and about 3,000 kilometers from Brazil on the other side. It was heavily fortified, little chance of Napoleon escaping. Uh, it's still a very remote island. My wife and I went there in uh, two and a half years ago. I felt I had to go and see the island for myself. And I do commend it as an extraordinary adventure. There is a regular, there's no airport. Uh, you can only go by sea. There's uh, fortunately a very regular service from the United Kingdom. There's only one ship that goes, and it goes twice a year from Portland in the United Kingdom. But you can pick it up every five weeks or so at Cape Town. We actually flew to Cape Town and then spent about eight days uh, sailing to St. Helena. So Napoleon was. Uh, uh, it was decided that he should go to St. Helena. He was still hoping that he might be allowed to go to um, the United States. And uh, the great Lord Admiral Lord Keith, who was Commander-in-Chief at Plymouth, was sent aboard the Bellerophon to tell Napoleon the good news. And in effect, what he did was to say to Napoleon, I'm very glad, Mr. Napoleon, to tell you that you're not actually going to be housed in a very comfortable uh, chateau in the home counties in, in Britain. We found this lovely island for you where you will be very uh, well accommodated and, and much freer than you would be in the, in the UK. And they gave him a letter which said, the, the island of St. Helena has been selected for his future residence. The climate is healthy. Its local situation will admit of his being treated with more indulgence than would be compatible with adequate security elsewhere. And curiously enough, the other day I got a letter from a, from a, a relative who dug out for me a letter by Winifred Holtby, the novelist, to Vera Britton, and she had visited St. Helena. And uh, the letter said, Never be sorry for Napoleon. St. Helena is exquisite. A symphony of blues. Longwood, the house where Napoleon lived, is glowing and dancing in blue, blue sea on three sides, nearly 2,000 feet below, uh, blue heliotrop, plumbago, blue flax uh, in the garden, blue butterflies, and on the hills, cobalt shadows. So never be sorry for Napoleon. Well, I think, um, I think both the Admiralty at the time and uh, Winifred Holdby must have had a great sense of humour. 
because uh, Napoleon, uh, St. is really, which is still a British dependency with a governor and a mini administration and so on, really is a pretty daunting place to be sent to after you have been the, in effect, the emperor of Europe. There was a horrified reaction among Napoleon's entourage. He had an entourage of uh, generals and senior people and valets and equerries and so on, 35, 40 of them. And they'd hoped he might be able to live in the United States or if not uh, in, the, um, in the United Kingdom or if not in the United States. They, they were horrified when they were told that they were to go to St. Helena. But the majority out of loyalty felt that having gone that far with Napoleon, they must stick with him. Uh, Fanny Bertrand was the exception. The senior general was uh, the marshal of the imperial called Le Maréchal de la Cour, Henri Gratien Bertrand, and his wife, a feisty woman called Fanny Bertrand. She was desperately unhappy. She begged Napoleon not to let, uh, not to force her husband to go. But he, uh, he said uh, he, he could not do this. He wanted uh, General Bertrand to go with him. And Fanny Bertrand, uh, according to the, uh, the accounts of the time, actually tried to throw herself out of one of the portholes of the ship uh, into the sea. They heard a commotion in the cabin. They rushed down. They just sort of grabbed her legs and pulled her back in. <coughs> in fact, one of the diaries says, perhaps we should have let her go. Um, <coughs> but... Um, so Napoleon was condemned to go to St. Helena, and he chose his companions. There were four senior companions, the General Bertrand, whom I've mentioned, and his wife, General Montelon and his wife, Albine de Montelon, whom I'll refer to later, General Gourgo, uh, and Count de Las Cases, a civilian of equal status to the generals and a whole host of valets, equerries, servants, and, and so on, and all of whom wrote their memoirs or journals in one form or another. And um, the little book that I wrote is primarily based on the, those primary sources, the memoirs and diaries of the people who um, accompanied Napoleon. The journey to St. Helena, he was transferred to another ship, the Northumberland, and they set off to uh, St. Helena, um, before that, I'm very glad, to, as a former chairman of Her Majesty's Customs and Excise, I'm very glad to say that he was subjected to a thorough customs examination before he was allowed to leave Plymouth. So they set off on the Northumberland to uh, St. Helena uh, under the command of Admiral Sir George Coburn. They left on the 8th of August, 1815, and arrived in St. Helena on the 14th of October. Um, arriving at St. Helena, perhaps I could have the second slide, please, is a very daunting <laughs> sight. It is a small island, about 11 miles by 6 miles. It's volcanic. There are sheer cliffs all the way around. There is no proper harbour. When you arrive there on the one ship, the RMS St. Helena, even now, the ship anchors about... Uh, uh, about half a mile offshore, you have to go down into little boats and be ferried to, the, to Jamestown, the capital. And as we approached, um, I looked, that is our first sight, photograph that my wife took. And I tried, I stood on the bridge, and I tried to imagine what Napoleon's thoughts were 
on that day in October 1815, when he first saw the island, he must have thought, Christ, where am I, where am I going? And he, uh, they all rushed onto the ship to see the island as this little dot gradually got uh, larger and larger. Could, could I have the next slide too, please? Um, and the reactions, Napoleon himself maintained a rather uh, un-French, uh, stiff upper lip. The, uh, his um, valet says that he, uh, he looked impassively at the island, faisant aucune observation et ne laissant rien deviner de ce qui passait dans son âme, giving no signs and giving no indication what was passing in his mind, and he went down below again. That, that is a picture of, um, a contemporary picture of Jamestown, the little capital of St. Helena, uh, and this is about where the ship anchors, so you're ferried to the, the little, uh, to the jetty from there. But as you will see, all round are these great, uh, great cliffs. The, um, all the party, um, the, the, sorry, the Fanny, Fanny Bertrand, the, the, who'd uh, been saved from throwing herself into the sea at Plymouth, was a bit less uh, reticent about the island. She was a wonderful woman. I wish I could have met her. She described the island in the following terms. She said it was <coughs> une île que le diable a chier <laughs> en volant d'un monde à l'autre. Uh, and if you pardon my French, it's an island that the devil shat in flying from one world to another. Um, first of all, Napoleon... Uh, was housed in temporary uh, quarters. Perhaps I could have the next slide. Uh, that actually, that shows Napoleon. It's a curious picture. I'm not quite sure who he's waving at. But that is Napoleon and the four senior people, the three generals, and on the right, uh, Count de Las Cases, who was his main emanuensis. And they're known as the four evangelists because they all left their uh, deta detailed memoirs. And perhaps the next slide too, please. Initially, um, Napoleon was housed in what is really a little pavilion attached to a house called the Briars, and he was there temporarily until they had renovated Longwood House, which was where he spent most of his captivity. And in that house, he, uh, he said it was the happiest, uh, he was there for about six weeks, it was the happiest, happiest period of his stay on St. Helena. There was a young girl called Betsy Balcom. Uh, who was aged about 15, and she could actually speak French, and she has left delightful memoirs of the time she spent playing, joking with Napoleon on the island. But he then moved on uh, to um, Longwood House, which is up in the uh, centre of the island. Next slide, please. There's an aerial view of Longwood House, and that is where Napoleon and the majority of his entourage, 35, 40 of them, were crammed in for the rest of his stay uh, on St. Helena. It was a, originally a farmhouse, a rather rambling farmhouse. It was very quickly renovated, restored to house Napoleon. Um, but for a man who'd stayed in the Elysee, at Malmaison, at Versailles, it was a pretty, a pretty basic uh, residence. He was crammed into three small rooms. It was rat infested. It was affected by termites. 
There's one wonderful description of Napoleon uh, having a meeting with the governor who'd put his hat on a sideboard. And during the meeting, the hat started moving up and down and around, and a, a large rat jumped out of it. So it was not really a great residence for, uh, for an emperor. Uh, in um, <coughs> 1858, actually, the house was sold uh, to the um, French government by the British government. And the house now is actually the property of France, uh, the house and its extensive gardens. And on this curious island where you see the Union Jack everywhere, there are pictures of the Queen, the Duke of Edinburgh, the royal family, Union Jacks everywhere, much more British than uh, in, in England. In the middle of the island, the tricolore stands firm <laughs> above Longwood House. And the, the conservateur, because it's uh, essentially a museum, uh, is the honorary French consul and a noted Napoleonic uh, scholar. Now, the rest of the story really centers on the uh, drama of Napoleon's unceasing struggle and conflict with the authority imposed by the governor. You see, Napoleon took the view, and maybe illegally he was in the right, that since he had surrendered uh, to the uh, British, he was not a prisoner and should not have been treated as such. Uh, and he regarded the, his captivity as being an absolute violation of human rights. I mean, you may raise an eyebrow at Napoleon protesting at violations of human rights, but that was his view. Can I have another slide, please? That is not Napoleon, but I think it's me on the steps of, um, of Longwood. Um, the Napoleon was desperately keen to preserve his imperial status. Um, and he struggled against the restrictions placed on him. And he had to combat boredom, the squabbling within his entourage. Each of the generals and the others wanted uh, to uh, gain Napoleon's favor and be first um, uh, preferred by him. But there was no pretense that he was any other than a closely guarded prisoner. Uh, when the uh, British government sent the new governor out, and I'll come to him in a moment, uh, they also sent out 2,000, 2,000 extra troops. There were about 800 on the island already. And the total population of the island was about 4,000. So they increased the population of the island by 50%. There was also an admiral with a small fleet circling the island 24 hours a day to make sure no, no um, rescue attempts could possibly uh, reach the island. Napoleon was free to wander within the extensive grounds of uh, Longwood House, but if he went outside, he had to be accompanied by a British officer. And every night, the, the sentries stood off. But I have the next slide, please. There is the view of Napoleon in the gardens of Longwood and the British soldiers on the perimeter. But every night at dusk, whoop, the sentries moved in, and they stood at 10, 15-meter intervals with fixed bayonets on the outside of the house. So there was no pretense uh, that Napoleon was uh, not uh, a, a prisoner. In April uh, 1816, the uh, general, Lieutenant General Sir Hudson Lowe, uh, a soldier with a decent record, though not particularly distinguished, was sent out to be the military governor and, in effect, Napoleon's jailer. Uh, 
And I had another dreadful shock the other day through a family genealogist. We discovered that my wife is the second cousin six times removed from the wife of Governor Lowe. Uh, he arrived in, uh, in April 1816, and of course, in the French tradition, he is the villain. He's described as Le Bourreau, the torturer. And uh, from the very first, immediate antagonism broke out between the governor and Napoleon. The governor arrived and decided to impose his authority by calling on Napoleon, going to see him on the, on, on the following day. So early in the morning on the next day, the governor in his scarlet and plumed general's hat and his entourage, his ADCs, rode off to Longwood House and uh, demanded to see Napoleon. And one of the servants came out and said, terribly sorry, governor, it's not convenient. Uh, he's in the bath. Uh, the governor was outraged. And, uh, and then uh, they said, and of course, you haven't got an appointment. And uh, they said, and, and people don't normally call on uh, emperors at nine o'clock in the morning without, uh, without an appointment. Uh, the governor was absolutely gobsmacked. And here was his prisoner, and he was supposed to have an appointment to see him. So uh, with great loss of face, the governor rode away and managed uh, with some difficulty and arranged an appointment with the emperor uh, on the following day. And they had their first sparring meeting, and I think it was a sort of no-score draw. Afterwards, Napoleon uh, said that he, um, he, he didn't like the look of the governor. The next slide, please. He described, that's uh, General Sir Hudson Lowe. Napoleon described him as looking like a hyena in a trap. <laughs> they then had a series of increasingly acrimonious meetings. It really is quite astonishing. The governor arrived in April... He had six meetings with Napoleon at Longwood. All of those took place between April and August 1816. They became increasingly acrimonious. Uh, Napoleon insulted the governor. He said, you know, you're, you're really rather like a corporal or a company clerk. You're not fit to be a general. The governor restrained himself, but eventually he, he could not resist answering back. And finally, in August 1816, after six meetings, Napoleon said, I will not see that man again. And the governor, commander-in-chief of St. Helena, never met Napoleon again until he saw him on his deathbed in 1821. It would, it, 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 it's comic if, it, if it, it hadn't been so tragic. One of the main sources of trouble between Napoleon, jealous of his status, anxious to maintain his imperial dignity, uh, and the governor, was the fact that the governor was instructed to address uh, Napoleon as le général Bonaparte. And this led to, really, the most ludicrous exchanges. Uh, the governor would send a letter to Longwood addressed to uh, général Bonaparte, and the letter was sent back to Government House saying, sorry, no one of that name known at this address. <laughs> And then uh, uh, Napoleon, I have the next uh, slide, please. That is um, um, uh, Napoleon, uh, the governor, on, uh, on the right, calling on Napoleon in his study. So Napoleon would then send a letter back to the governor. Uh, Napoleon never signed or wrote himself. He dictated, and one of the generals would sign it. And the letter from the 
might be uh, your excellency his majesty the emperor wishes to inform you etc etc and the governor would send it back saying sorry we're not aware of any emperor on this island <laughs> so you can imagine how these these issues festered on the island there was also a great dispute about uh, napoleon's he was allowed i think it was um, 10000 uh, pounds a year for expenditure at Longwood. It was, uh, in effect, a cash limit. And I certainly, as a former Treasury official, I very much approve of cash limits. But Napoleon said he couldn't possibly exist on this limit. The governor raised it to 12,000, but he couldn't get authority from London to increase it further. So Napoleon decided to show the world how badly he was treated, and he started breaking up his silver, he took a lot of china and, and silver plate, breaking up his silver plate and sent it down for sale in, in the capital, Jamestown, which really was to show the world I'm being so badly treated by the British government that I've actually got to sell the family silver. Now, all this, this squabbling, this boredom, controlling his uh, increasingly fractious household, uh, the absence of any policy change in Europe. You see, Napoleon hoped and hoped that there would be a change of policy in, uh, in London or which would allow him to uh, return to Europe. All this began to lead to a steady physical uh, and psychological deterioration. I have the next... Uh, that's a, a, a slide. I think that's supposed to be the governor in the background, one of the sentries, and Napoleon gazing out to sea. He, uh, he tried to maintain his status. Every night, the household had to attend for dinner in full ceremonial dress. No one could sit down without the emperor allowing them to do so. Uh, but gradually, gradually, this began to uh, slip, uh, and Napoleon began to uh, uh, lose hope. He, he began to realize that he wasn't going to get back to Europe and that uh, St. Helena would uh, be the end. Uh, and some of his entourage left, the uh, uh, Lascars, who wrote uh, a book called, uh, enormous memoirs called Le Memorial, was the first to go, kicked out by the governor for allegedly spying. General Gorgo, who got very unhappy and, uh, and ill, went back home. And Napoleon began to dread that he was going to be left alone on the island. But in the event, the, uh, the very faithful uh, General Bertrand stayed on to the end, uh, as did General Montalon, and the two extraordinarily faithful servants who both left extensive and fascinating memoirs, uh, Marchand uh, and uh, Etienne, Etienne Saint-Denis, who was known as Mameluk Ali, very, very sort of egocentric uh, habit of Napoleon, he had him dressed up as a, a Mameluke in memory of his Egyptian campaign in uh, 1798. Napoleon also, I mean, it was a highly, there were all sorts of speculation on Napoleon's sexuality, but he was a highly sexed man who'd had many mistresses. Um, General Bertrand says that he once asked Napoleon how many, and he said he'd had six mistresses, but Bertrand thought he'd had many more. But he treated women, I think, generally like objects. I came across a quotation by Napoleon, which he said, J'ai mes saisons comme les chiens. Une femme, une femme, tout de suite comme ma même, une femme. I have my seasons like a dog. A woman, a woman, let somebody bring me a woman very quickly. Uh, 
But on St. Helena, of course, he was deprived of direct female company. Josephine died in, uh, while he was on Elba. Uh, his uh, wife, uh, Marie Louise, had been spirited away to, uh, to Austria by her father, the emperor, and was totally alienated from him. Um, the, uh, his uh, favorite mistress, the Polish countess, Marie Waleska, who'd visited him on Elba, was not allowed to go to St. Helena. So Napoleon, I think, was very, very frustrated. He tried very hard to get the marvelous Fanny Berton into bed with him. But Fanny, who alone of his entourage lived in a separate house, she insisted that they lived in a cottage opposite Longwood uh, and not in uh, Longwood itself. But, sorry, next slide, please. Fanny, Fanny Berton uh, refused to, um, to climb into bed with Napoleon and he was very angry and he banned her from Longwood for a long period until near his death. But he did, I think, on my reading, uh, get um, Albine de Montelon, next one please, uh, the wife of General Montelon. Uh, she left uh, remarkably frank diaries which were not published in, uh, until comparatively recently, but certainly on my reading, it's, there's no doubt whatsoever that she became Napoleon's mistress on St. Helena and she had a baby uh, in uh, June 1818. Uh, and she left the island shortly afterwards. The baby didn't survive. It died very soon after she arrived back uh, in Europe. So Napoleon, his wife and child were away. He had no wife or mistress on the island, and his health steadily de deteriorated. He took less exercise, partly because he said to the British, if you won't allow me outside uh, uh, Longwood to go riding or walking, Without the escort of a British officer, I just won't go. And so he, he got very fat. The um, next slide, but there's what I call the fat Napoleon. His health deteriorated, and he spent more and more time in his small bedroom and in the bath. Uh, I actually, one of my thrills in going around Longwood House was that when no one was looking, the original bath is there, I actually stood in the bath. <laughs> Diana was terrified that my foot would go through it, but it didn't. Um, so Napoleon spent more and more time uh, in, his, uh, uh, in his, um, his, his bedroom and in the bathroom. He worked in the bath. He had a little tray built across it. Uh, he had meetings there. He dictated. He read and so on. But his health deteriorated. There were some periods of recovery. He, uh, he suddenly took to gardening. Next slide, please. And there's a rather flattering picture, because I think he was much fatter than that at that stage. And he had everyone up in the morning, out digging and uh, planting, and partly to erect barriers to try and um, obscure the view of the, um, of the British sentries. But that didn't uh, last long. And uh, Marchand, his first valley, records that absolutely everything they planted uh, failed to grow. He uh, built some little pools and put fish in them, but they all died. Uh, his Chinese laborers built him a beautiful wooden aviary, and all the birds escaped or died. So um, he, he didn't have great success. He even had a seesaw made. There's a wonderful description in the memoirs of uh, General Bertrand of um, Napoleon, the great Napoleon on one end of the seesaw, and Le Maréchal de la Cour, General Henri Gartien Bertrand, up in the air on the other end of it. See, Napoleon was much fatter. And it would have made a wonderful cartoon if that uh, had, had got into Europe. But 
his health deteriorated. And of course, the medical treatment was totally inadequate. It was largely centered on bleeding and emetics to clear the system of impurities. Um, and I think the only comfort that uh, Napoleon got was from those hours and hours he spent in the bath, a bit like Winston Churchill, reading, dictating, and, and so on. And the situation was aggravated by great squabbles over his doctors. For the first two, three years, he had an Irish naval surgeon, uh, Dr. Barry O'Meara, who again has left very long uh, uh, memoirs of the time he was there. But O'Meara, though a British officer, a British naval officer, played a double game. He was spying on Napoleon for the governor and for the governor on Napoleon and so on. And finally, the governor kicked him out and he was sent back. But after Dr. O'Meara had, uh, had gone in August uh, 1818, Napoleon would not accept uh, any other doctors nominated by the governor because he believed they would only be spies. Uh, finally, in uh, 1819, his mother, who was, was still alive, Madame Mère, uh, sent out a couple of priests who turned out to be totally useless uh, and a doctor called, a Corsican doctor called Antomachi, who was a young uh, anatomist. Uh, and Napoleon had no faith whatsoever in him. There's a lovely quote by Napoleon. Napoleon said, I'd readily give him my horse to dissect, but I wouldn't trust him with my own foot. So Dr. Antomarchi had uh, little influence. Napoleon's health deteriorated. The, uh, a common diagnosis was acute hepatitis, but the governor was uh, very unwilling to accept that diagnosis because it... It implied that uh, it was caused by conditions and the climate and the logic of that would be to let him go escape from uh, St. Helena. Napoleon himself, remembering the death of his father, his father had died at an early age uh, from stomach cancer, Napoleon began to suspect that he had cancer himself. He had dreadful abdominal uh, pains and distress. There's a lot of controversy over Napoleon's death. I won't go into that now. I do discuss it in my, in my book. There are theories of poisoning, arsenic poisoning, and so on. And to cut through that, I really don't think there is any substance in those. It's very difficult to see any motivation, certainly not on the part of the British. The last thing they wanted to, uh, to be was to be accused of, of murdering Napoleon. Uh, and I think most historians uh, believe that Napoleon actually died of stomach cancer. Uh, and there was an autopsy carried out by Dr. Antomarchi, and uh, I think the, uh, the, the autopsy demonstrates pretty conclusively that Napoleon died of uh, uh, stomach uh, cancer. Anyway, he, he, uh, he was in great distress in the last weeks of his life, in the, the first uh, quarter of 1821, and he died a very squalid and painful death on the 5th of May, 1821, surrounded by all his faithful comrades who'd stayed to the end with him. And there is a very famous painting, next slide please, by Steuben showing the, the deathbed scene. Um, and I think in the Army Museum, where I think we're going, there is a, a, a reconstruction of that scene in part. And the next one, too, please. That's a detail of... Uh, that is uh, 
with a head partly cut off, that is Fanny Bertrand, who was at last allowed to, uh, to be reconciled with Napoleon, a, a detail of the, of the picture. So he died in the afternoon on that day. It's said that his last words were, France, mon fils, l'armée, Josephine, four of the things that meant the most to him. Uh, they also report that on his death there was a violent storm on the island which uprooted many of the trees he'd planted and so on. Uh, there was a great contrast to the reaction in, uh, uh, in London. I don't know whether you've heard the, the great story that uh, when the news of his death got through to London, uh, Castlereagh, the foreign minister, rushed to, uh, by then, George IV to tell him the news. He said, Sire, your greatest enemy is dead. To which the king said, is she by God? <laughs> he, uh, thinking, that, um, thinking that he referred to his estranged wife, Queen Caroline. Now, Napoleon always wanted to be buried in France. Uh, to translate, he said, I want to repose on the banks of the Seine in the midst of the French people I have loved so much. Uh, but the governor was instructed to bury him on St. Helena. Uh, and they chose as his burial site, uh, in fact, a place that Napoleon had said, if I can't be buried in France, this is what I'd choose. It's a lovely little valley called Geranium Valley, which is very green with a, a fresh spring from which they took water, actually, for Longwood House. Next slide, please. There's a photograph of the tomb, now empty, of course, in Geranium Valley. And uh, I must, uh, my wife and I visited it, I must confess that I felt that I was perhaps desecrating it when we had a picnic and sat round it, uh, having our lunch. Um, anxious to get him into the ground as soon as possible, the governor gave him the best funeral that St. Helena could provide, not with the honours of a head of state, but with the honours of a general. And on the 9th of May, 12 grenadiers carried the coffin from Longwood House to a hearse outside, drawn by four of Napoleon's horses. Then the cortege with the coffin covered with blue velvet and the sword that Napoleon wore at the Battle of Marengo and the cloak, followed by his household, and then the governor and his entourage and all the top brass of the island processed slowly to Geranium Valley. 2,000 British soldiers and sailors lined the route, arms reversed, the bands played, funeral marches, and the hills echoed with salvos uh, of the troops lining the route and the booming of the naval guns from the uh, fleet round the island. And the governor took no chances. You never know with Napoleon. He wanted him to be truly dead and buried with no relics remaining for hero worship. He was buried in no fewer than four coffins and about three meters deep, a bit like a Russian doll. The outer coffin was mahogany, the next one was lead, the third one was mahogany, and the whole was put in a large coffin of a sort of tin plate. And all this was covered with a deep layer of earth and cement and heavy stone slabs. And even in death, there was another protocol dispute. Napoleon's 
comrades, uh, General Bertrand, wanted a simple inscription on the tombstone which just said Napoleon and the dates and places of his birth and death. But the governor insisted on adding the word Bonaparte. He was carrying out his instructions to the end. So Napoleon's entourage said, OK, we'll have nothing on the tomb. So there was no inscription on the tombstone at all, which is the case with the one next door. But I suppose nowadays everyone knows that it's, it belongs to uh, Napoleon. But this was not, of course, the end. Uh, while General Sir Hudson Lowe, who returned immediately home and eventually died in relative poverty in London, the Napoleon legend lived on through the succeeding years, through the Bourbon Restoration in the restoration of Louis XVIII and the, his successors in France, until in 1840, the British government agreed to a request by King Louis-Philippe that the French should be allowed to exhume Napoleon and bring him back to France. Uh, Lord Palmerston negotiated this, but uh, they still felt it necessary to consult the Chancellor of Oxford University, uh, the Duke of Wellington, before they took the final decision. And the Duke sent a wonderful reply, which I, may I quote to you. He said, Field Marshal the Duke of Wellington presents his compliments to Her Majesty's ministers. If they wish to know his opinion as a matter of public policy, he must decline to give one. If, however, they only wish to consult him as a private individual, he has no hesitation in saying that he doesn't care a tuppenny damn what happens to the ashes of Napoleon Bonaparte. <laughs> it was sort of je m'en fous. <laughs> but I think that was probably a fair tit for tat in, in view of all the uncomplimentary things that uh, Napoleon tended to say about Wellington. He wrongly blamed him for being sent to St. Helena, and he usually denigrated uh, uh, Wellington's capacity as a general. At any rate, agreement was given, and in 1840, uh, an expedition set out for St. Helena, led by the, the son of Louis-Philippe, the, the Prince de Joinville, on the frigate La Belle Poule, and they reached St. Helena on the 9th of October, 1840, almost 25 years to the day since Napoleon himself landed there. And among the members of the expedition were the faithful General Bertrand and General Gorgo, and the son of, of Emmanuel de Las Cars, and also those two faithful servants, Marchand and Mamluk Ali. The, it was a real engineering challenge. I described the uh, the, the, the coffins and the tomb, it was a real engineering challenge which took over 13 hours to uh, get Napoleon out. And it's vividly described almost minute by minute in an account by General Gourgo, which is called Le Retour des Cendres. Why Les Cendres, I don't know, but that, that is what is used. And at 1 p.m. on the 15th of October, the lid of the last coffin was carefully drawn back I always think it's sort of opening a sardine tin, but they, they open the coffin to reveal Napoleon's corpse. And to the amazement of all the onlookers, onlookers the body was almost perfectly preserved. Uh, and uh, Gorgo and others who were there said that it looked more like the Napoleon in his pomp uh, than on the day he died. Anyway, they quickly um, 
close the coffin to prevent any further decomposition. They put him into other coffins and a great ebony coffin they brought, uh, and they lifted him onto a waiting carriage and processed to Jamestown, to the harbour you saw earlier, uh, and down at the jetty, the coffin was handed over to the Prince de Joinville, who conveyed it out on a launch to La Belle Poule, which set sail on the 18th of October. And looking back as they sailed away, General Gorgo, looking at the island of St. Helena, sighed and he said, Je ne désire pas la revoir. <laughs> I think that was probably the sentiment of all those who'd been on the original uh, uh, stay in St. Helena. In November, the end of November 1840, La Belle Poule reached Cherbourg. The coffin was transferred to another ship which journeyed to the mouth of the Seine. Then it was moved to another smaller vessel for the journey down the Seine. And it was a triumphal <coughs> river passage. The banks were lined with cheering crowds, including many veterans of the Grande Armée. It ended at a place called Courbevoie, where Marshal Soult who'd been Napoleon's chief of staff at Waterloo, uh, knelt in homage to receive it, a very moving moment. And then on the 15th of December, it was placed on a vast hearse, I think only equaled in vulgarity by the hearse which, um, uh, on which Wellington was conveyed to St. Paul's Cathedral. And it was led by 16 black horses surmounted by a cenotaph weighing over 13 tons, 10 meters high, and was gradually conveyed to where we are now, to Les Invalides, through Paris to Les Invalides. The next slide, please. Uh, sorry, that is the a scene of the exhumation. I'm sorry, I missed that earlier. And that is the, uh, the procession of the hearse through uh, this vast, this vast hearse. It made its way to here, to Les Invalides, among huge crowds again lining the route with veterans in their faded uniforms and their bare skins, some sleeping on the ground overnight, some freezing to death. It was minus 15 degrees or so at the time, very, very cold weather. And many of Napoleon's former marshals and generals followed the coughing, including the faithful Bertrand uh, and Gorgo. It uh, went under the Arc de Triomphe <coughs> and arrived here at Les Invalides, where some 40,000 guests were awaiting it, shivering on the temporary stands erected outside. And inside the church were King Louis-Philippe and the Queen, to whom the Prince de Joinville handed over the coffin with, Sire, I present you with the body of Napoleon, to which the King said, I receive it in the name of France. It must have been an extraordinarily moving moment. Bertrand, the faithful Bertrand, was asked to place who incidentally is buried, uh, his tomb is here next to Napoleon's. General Bertrand was asked to place Napoleon's sword on the coffin. Gorgo was asked to place his famous tricorn hat on the coffin and then became, began a funeral service conducted by the Archbishop of Paris and a performance of the Mozart Requiem with a choir of 600 voices. It was a true apotheosis of the uh, emperor and a spectator was heard to say, it is more than glorification of a great man, it is like the restoration of his dynasty. So, Napoleon's final days were really, I'm sure all of you here are very familiar with Aristotle's Ars Poetica, it was a truly Aristotelian 
tragedy with a very great man falling from the highest to the lowest estate. And after the squalor and misery of Napoleon's stay on St. Helena, his return to France saw the eagle, the Napoleonic symbol, rising high and the Napoleonic legend uh, launched again. And now the emperor lies in state nearby, you'll see the tomb later, with the faithful Bertrand buried next to him. Quite a contrast with the fate of the governor, Sir Hudson Lowe, who uh, returned, as I said earlier, to England soon after Napoleon's death. He was made a scapegoat for the unpopularity of the government of the day. The government were very unpopular for their treatment of Napoleon. Uh, Hudson Lowe was made a scapegoat. He was never given another job commensurate with his uh, experience and status, and he died in relative poverty. He was not a great governor, uh, but he didn't deserve uh, he didn't let Napoleon escape. He didn't deserve that, uh, that treatment. I'd like to finish now with what I guess is a touching anecdote from the delightful memoirs of Betsy Balcom, the young girl with whom Napoleon stayed at the beginning of his uh, period on St. Helena. She tried to teach him a bit of English. I mean, Napoleon couldn't speak French very well, and he never really learned English. Um, but he did procure some English books, and among them, a copy of Aesop's Fables. And in one of them, uh, the, there was the story of the sick lion, who'd been the king of beasts, the sick lion, uh, who was very ill. And after submitting with fortitude to the insults of the many animals who came to exult over his fallen greatness, at last the lion received a kick in the face from the ass. The lion said, I could have borne everything but this. And Napoleon pointed to it and he said, that's me and your governor. <laughs> but his triumphal return to Paris in 1840 showed that the Aesop's sick and fallen lion had risen from the floor and kicked back at the ass. Uh, you must now go and see for yourselves and I'd better finish. I really don't want to have a vote of thanks like the one which Dr. Johnson once gave to a speaker who'd gone on rather too long. He said, uh, fascinating lecture. He said, do come and speak to us again sometime when you have less time to spare. <laughs> um, thank you very much. <laughs>